the D'Amato's are sick, so they pretty sure won't be here today. Uh, and we'll set new cassado. I got a lot to cover. I, I don't think I'll cover it all. I got to finish up from last week anyway. Um, we are looking at Solomon, especially as it concerns building up the temple. That's kind of the highlight of his, uh, reign. The main thing that he did, you might say, certainly when it comes to the Bible and how it fits into uh, the redemptive plan. So last week, though, we saw Solomon enlisting foreign nations to help him build the temple. We uh, saw the way the New Testament uses the temple to um, speak of the church. The church is composed of both Jew and Gentile. The uh Jews alone built the tabernacle, but the temple, which again speaks more of the uh, coming kingdom, is something that the Jew and Gentile helped build. And of course, we know that we are part of that living temple now. And then uh, we'll kind of, again, build on this uh, some today as well, the costly gold that composed so much of the temple, and not just the gold, but it's silver and everything else doesn't teach that, it's not, the point of that is not that we can build extravagant churches, church buildings. The temple is not a church building. It doesn't represent a church building. The building is merely a place where the church, the temple meets. The temple is the dwelling place of God. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. And so the extravagance of it, and maybe it's not the best word to use because extravagance generally has the connotation of more than is needed and and too much in in a sense or just you know way beyond the norm uh, the the cost and the glory of it the beauty of it is is inside uh, it teaches of the glory of of Christ who uh, is fulfilled in the temple and uh, and his glory in redeeming sinners. So the, the glory of the temple speaks of the glory of God and the glory of the whole redemptive plan, the glory of, of everything God is doing. And so that's what you got to see in the temple. The temple points to Christ and the church. Uh, it doesn't point to the church building and give us a license to uh, be to have fancy things, especially when it comes to church building. This is two different things entirely. Um. We learned, uh, so that as Solomon is doing this, that the, uh, that there's the wealth and glory of Israel it is concentrated in the things of God. And, uh, we understand that there is an extravagance and an indulgence that is sinful. So, so again, when we're, we're looking at this, there are those who criticize what, what happened because, well, you're wasting all this money on, uh, on, on well, I mean, they probably wouldn't say it like this, but in a sense they're saying you're wasting all this money on God when you could be giving it to the poor. On, on religion, maybe how the world would put it. Maybe even Christians maybe would think that way. And so again, if we understand that uh, the reason that the money and the cost is being put in these things is because it is about God. It is for the Lord. It is, this is what's important. And there's a, so, there's a sense in which you, you can overdo, you can spend too much money on things that shouldn't be, but, but, but when you look at this, you gotta keep in mind this is for the Lord. These, this is teaching about the coming kingdom and the coming Messiah. And in that covenant, 
the physical blessings spoke of the work of God and, and what he was doing with Israel. That was kind of their inheritance, as it were. So just uh, perhaps if you think about, uh, to illustrate a couple of different ways, uh, the, the rich uh, fool, remember the one who said, I will, I've got barns, I've got more, I don't have enough barns for all my uh, grain, so I'm going to build more barns and so I can fill my grain up. He, he had more than he needs. And the thoughts of, of giving it away, of helping others, wasn't in his mind. It was just to get as much as I can. And, of course, he died and went to hell. The Lord said, well, I'm going to, uh, you're not going to enjoy any of it because he, he was building for himself. And that that would be a sense of, of extravagance in a sinful way. But what, what we have here, I think, would be one example would be Mark 14.3. <clears throat> And while he, as Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So this was used up. This, this, whatever this was, how, whatever it cost and so forth, it was all going to be used on Jesus and nothing left over, right? And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? <clears throat> For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, you can do good for them. So it's, it's a good thing. Uh, the, the Lord leaves it up to us to, to do that. It is a good thing. It is a way to share the love of God and so forth. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And I think, in a sense, the Lord had her do that, unbeknownst to her, perhaps. But it, it was a way of him being anointed for his burial, which was coming up. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, that she has what she has done will be told in memory of her. So you see here, the Lord said that, be careful here because you can't do too much for the Lord. He, the, God is so glorious that you can't, you can't be extravagant in serving the Lord, in, in honoring His name, and that it's okay in, in to spend money towards that end. Again, not to be fancy, not to call attention to ourselves or to build buildings that serve no purpose, but to to, to spend money for the gospel, I think it's interesting that he finishes by talking about whatever the gospel is proclaimed. Of course, by the gospel, he's talking about the, the teaching of God's word, uh, because what she's doing isn't necessarily the gospel, but the gospel in a, in a broader sense. That, so, so that's what's important. And so, yeah, it would, would it be wrong for us to, I think, build a fancy building that, that it goes beyond anything that we need? I, I personally think that's wrong. I think a lot of churches have been guilty of that. But also I understand that there, to some degree that's a subjective thing and, and you gotta be careful about deciding what's extravagant or too much for somebody else, right? But what you can't do is spend money, spend too much money on the purpose of the church, which is to preach the gospel to the whole world. That's, that's what we're here to do, right? And so to say, well, you're spending money sending out missionaries and doing this ministry or that ministry, and you could be sitting, uh, you know, feeding the poor. Well, like Jesus says, 
It's not the church's job to feed the poor. It's the church's job to do something much greater than that, and that is to preach the gospel to the poor. That is all men, all women, right? Uh, rich or poor, because we're all poor when it comes to uh, good work, right, to salvation. So so that is where the money should be spent. And the, the church's resources are primarily to proclaim the gospel, to guard the gospel, to uh, guard the preaching of God's word, to be a pillar and ground of the truth. So wherever we are doing that, that is, you can't be too extravagant. And we, we want to be wise in the way we spend our money and so forth. But our sources are to build the kingdom, not to end physical suffering. And I think that's forgotten by many, especially when you think about kind of the, the liberal church or the liberal Christians, which is, uh, I think it was, uh, uh, Machen who said it, that, uh, liberal, somebody I know said it, that liberal, liberal Christianity isn't really Christianity, but they, they think their mission is to alleviate suffering. You think, well, why? How do they get their focus on, on social issues and, and not the gospel? Because they don't believe the gospel to start with. They don't believe that Jesus died and raised, was raised again. They don't believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. So why would they focus their attention on that? Because what does that mean? So they focus their attention on just doing good things, good works, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it becomes a bad thing when it replaces the proclamation of the gospel, you see. So we want to be careful that we understand what we're here for and how our resources are to be spent. Well, finally, in chapter uh Six, which we, or chapter, yeah, six, we never really got out of last time. I think that's, uh, make sure I, if we've got like four different chapters we're, we're looking at here. But it says uh, that we read that God comes to Solomon after he has built the temple in uh, verse 11 of chapter six. Now the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you have are building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. <clears throat> and so he comes while he's building the temple, while he's busy obeying and honoring him, the Lord comes to him and reminds him that you you must you must continue to obey, or all this work will be for nothing. Um, and, and the Lord won't dwell in Israel, which of course he was gracious to tell him that because that's exactly what ends up happening at some point, right? But what we see there, we notice is that once the kings rule over Israel, they end up being the ones who determine the whether the nation is going to keep the covenant or not. See, the Lord, in one sense, has already spoken to everybody because his word has been given. People knew his word. But notice that after they, they have a king, now all of a sudden the Lord comes to the king and says, if you will keep the covenant. Because as the king goes, so will go the people. And we've talked about that, that the, the, the people have more or less put themselves under this patriarchy where... uh as they, they, and not so much patriarchy, although obviously they were men, but uh, they they found a mediator likened to themselves, a king, so they could be like other nations. Remember when they asked for a king, <clears throat> and so <clears throat> I'm gonna, we're going to let him 
have the responsibility. And of course, the problem with that is that if you had a bad king, whether you know you're going to suffer for it. That's what ends up happening. The kings let them let them fall into idolatry, and the people suffered for it. And so um, they're still held accountable, and they're going to suffer the consequences. But the power to obey and the, the the authority to obey is squarely on the kings at this point, as we see there in verse eleven. And so it's all confirmed sub- subsequently in Israel's history because as the king went, so went the people. And so the people have asked for a king to, to stand between them and the Lord because uh, they didn't want the responsibility. And God's reaction was that they were rejecting him as their judge. If you go back and remember and read there in uh, uh, 1 Samuel when they're asking for a king, they he told Samuel, they have rejected me uh, so they can have one likened to them to rule them. Well, because sinful men aren't going to rule them, it, it, at least that's the mindset that it'll be easier to have someone that I can see and touch and so forth. And yet we know that but as we see the history of all this, the kings, even though they were from the people, they oppressed the people. They end up no one can be as gracious and loving and just as the Lord himself. And so uh, they, they, they wanted a mediator that was like unto themselves, but it doesn't work out good. How could it? And of course, that's the whole problem, because a mere man can never rise above himself. So no matter what king they have, the king's no better than they are. And the mediator... The go-between you and the Lord is no better than you are. And now leadership is important, you know, because, you know, I've heard it said, and I, I, in my years of of ministry, I would agree that a church, to some degree, will never rise above the leadership, the, the level of the leadership. And that makes sense. Leadership is important. But in the New Covenant, there is no mediator between you and the Lord other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And on earth, it's you, know, you are responsible for yourself. That's part of being in the new covenant. So I, what we see here is a weakness of the old covenant. Because the weight of continued blessing was placed on the king. And what that does is doom them from the start, right? Because... The king was no better than they were. A king was a sinner. And then you also see the beauty of the new covenant. Because as our king, as our mediator is, so we go. And Jesus is the perfect son of God. uh, Perfectly kept the law. Perfectly righteous. So, it's we know that as our king goes, so we go. And that's what I think what, what Hebrews says. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. I think that's really what's what's being said. As long as he's in favor with the Father, all things are good. And uh, turn over to John 17, and I think you see an example of this. And so, you know, just the whole, all the different uh, scenarios of the kings of Israel and when they did good, the nation was blessed. And when they did bad, the nation was cursed and, and suffered. It's there's a, The purpose there is to, to contrast the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
I mean, there's a lot of things going on there, but, but that's one of the things we should be thankful for when we see this. I'm thankful that my lot in life and certainly in glory is not uh, based on somebody else's obedience or mine, but the Lord Jesus himself. And so in John 17, let's read, first of all, just the first five verses. When, G- when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now, look, now just think about what I've been saying and, and when he says these words. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they shall know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I mean, that's quite a mouthful. That's, and, and nobody other than Christ could ever say any of this because he's basically saying, I have done what I was sent to do. Uh, no one is able to do that since the fall. No, no human being, not only the God-man, right? So unlike Solomon and, and all the kings of Israel who kept failing, Jesus says, I haven't failed. So, first of all, bless me, glorify me. He makes that statement. Then read, uh, starting in verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Uh, Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Of course, there he's talking about the disciples, but then later on, he says, I pray not for them only, but for all those you have given me out of the world. So you see that the mediator, this is why this is called the high priestly prayer, that Jesus is saying, I have done the work, and this includes the work he was going to do the next day. Um, And so, bless them through me, all those in Christ have eternal life. And so you see the difference between being in Solomon or under an Old Testament king and all your hope is placed in in how well he does and what it is to be have all our hope placed in what Jesus Christ does. So it's just a a beautiful way of of preaching the gospel and of understanding the, the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is not just that, well, Christ died for your sins, and if you uh, decide to believe one day, you'll be saved. No, the, the security of the whole thing is that uh, Christ is, is perfect. His righteousness is given to us. And so here Israel had a perfect paradise. All they had to do was worship Yahweh alone, and it could continue forever. I will dwell with you forever. It, it, we'll see this in a little bit when, he talk, when he's Dedicating the temple. The Lord says, I will dwell in this place forever. And yet, we know the Lord didn't dwell in there. It doesn't even exist. It, it, it was destroyed. It was rebuilt. And that one was destroyed. You know, because it spoke of something greater than that building. It spoke of Christ and especially the, the, the church, the body of Christ. God will dwell in us forever. 
Not not a building, because that was never the point. The building was never the point. What it pictured was the point, the church of God. And so, you can pamper man all you want to. Uh, you can promise him anything you, you want. You can give him everything he desires. But he cannot serve. He cannot do what Jesus Christ did. Because we have sin in us. So, you know, to me, those are the things that, that kind of gets me excited, those kind of uh, things. And, and uh, just the way it points to Jesus Christ. Well, um, in chapter 7, Solomon builds the temple. And again, we can't really read or you know, make comment on all these things. But as we study Solomon's actions as king, uh, we see him exercising the wisdom for the security and good of the people. We talked a lot about, about that last week. And the focal point of his reign is here building the temple. And the question then is what do we make of all these details? Um, something that, first of all, would, wasn't going to last all that long, and its value is immediately lessened when the Lord says that he doesn't need a house to start with, that, he, that, he, that the house can't contain him anyway. Uh, Solomon couldn't build such a house. So what do you make of all that? Well, I think you had, what the only way it makes any sense is, to understand that there was what, what it's all leading to, that is Lord Jesus Christ in the church. So there's no question that this was an elaborate and expensive building. But like with the tabernacle, the most glorious part is within, not seen from the outside. It was seen in, in the beauty inside. And so we easily see how this would apply, first of all, to the incarnate Christ. Remember, I said the the, the the tabernacle built in the wilderness, I think, focuses primarily on, type, on uh, teaching of Jesus Christ, who, as he became a man and he walked on this earth, he looked like any other man, but his glory was within, right? And on the Mount of Transfiguration, that, that veil was just put aside for a moment so you could see the glory, because it was who he was that makes his work on the cross effective. You know, when he was saying on the cross, there was nothing about him that was appealing, that was glorious. You know, Isaiah 53 talks about that. But what was going on, this perfect uh, righteous God-man was bearing the wrath of sin. The glory was taking place inside him. And I think the tabernacle points not just to Christ, obviously it, it it, it all is fulfilled in Christ. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant. But, but it, the, 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 the temple speaks, I think, of the glory of the church, the body of Christ, because it's a permanent thing in a sense. And so those, I think, are some of the things that it, when you kind of keep that in mind, you can glean more from all this. So there's a sense in which the temple teaches of Jesus Christ where the Godhead dwells in bodily Form. Uh, of course, we know that the Ark of the Covenant was kind of the, it was the innermost part of the temple, but it was really all the other furnishings of the temple, that, from the brazen altar outside all the way to the uh, golden altar of prayer, uh, of incense. It was all about how to get to the most holy place, because that represented the very dwelling place of God. So, Everything about the temple speaks of the work of Christ, what he was going to do as a priest to get his people 
to, to get have their sins forgiven and bring us to Christ. That's why the veil was rent when Christ died, because everything, sin and death, that, that separated us from God has been dealt with in Christ. And so a way has been made open. Um, but it also pictures the church because that the, it's the body of Christ on earth is where God dwells now in the new covenant. So we are the to we are in one sense the what the world sees of Christ is seen in His body in the, in the temple, the earthly temple, the, the the church of God, and they see it not so much in the way we live, but in the what we speak, the word of God, and 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 as that word transforms our life, that's what they see of Christ. And so, in a sense, each saint is also a temple of the Lord. The church corporately is the bride and body of Christ. But I know that I am a dwelling place of God. And that's why I'm a I'm a living temp uh, block, as as Peter says, a, a lively block, a living block, a living brick that composes the living church, the the church at large, as it were. So so you've got Christ, you've got the church, and you have ourselves all. In one way or another, our fulfillment of the uh, whole picture of the temple. Um, Ephesians 2, if you want to turn over there, just to see how the New Testament brings uh, some of these things together. Ephesians chapter 2, and let's just start reading in verse 12. And we'll read down through verse 22. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Talking about now to the Gentiles specifically. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope without God in the world. Because God didn't make a covenant with Gentiles. Now they they could be added. If they became Jews in a sense right. And came underneath the covenant. But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. So you see now, it's not about, it's it's about who he is, not about a king or, or any earthly man. Who has made us both one, that is Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the divining wall of hostility. So just as the high priest and the priest, as they did their work in the temple, in the tabernacle, they in, in doing that work, of getting that blood into the most holy place and sprinkling it on the mercy seat, what do they do? They broke down the wall of division between us and God. And notice here how he kind of, what, how he's going to bring this out. Because here the wall isn't, isn't the, the, what separates between us and God. It's what separates us from the Jews. Uh, you know, the, the profane from the, uh, um, the, the holy. The Gentiles who were alienated from God had no hope in Christ now that in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and express in ordinances that is, by abolishing the old covenant, by fulfilling it, and making it n- null and void, no longer needed. That So now, the, the Jews, if they understand, and, and there's so much 
confusion here because it's so hard for the Jews to separate their culture from as Jews from the, how all that is is type and 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 shadows and no longer needed, and now they just need to embrace Christ. And he can halfway understand that because if if man has a a a, a problem that he, he struggles with, it is making way more out of his culture than he needs to, and out of his heritage. You know, and I understand that to some degree. You know, I mean, I I don't have that problem, and I, it's it's not because of me. It's just because you know I have ancestors that came from you know French Canada, England, Germany. You know, I'm just kind of a mutt, you know, as, as most of us are, in a sense. And I, so I don't have any one, I can't say that my grandparents came over from Italy, so I'm Italian and all that kind of stuff. And so you got these people who, they struck, they, they make so much out of their heritage. And, and I wouldn't say it's, it's wrong. But the problem is that you, they, that's what defines me. And, and, and that's what the, the Jews have that, because they have such a long, thousands of year, a, a great heritage in a sense, biblically speaking. You think about all the things that they, they are, but it's made it very difficult, even sometimes for Christian Jews to divide their culture, which is types and shadows, from now that I have Christ, all that stuff, uh, you gotta make sure you don't make too much out of it. Because it's being in Christ. That's what it's saying here. In uh, He's abolished, in verse 15, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, making peace. And this is because it's peace with Jew and Gentile. But you see, notice there that that any Christian, Jew or Gentile, your identity is in Christ. Not in what you were. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're Scottish, whatever. Again, I don't. I'm not trying to say it's it's wrong to have some measure of pride. Although I I can't think of any. If you just think about it, what country you could come from? What ethnic people could you come from that you can be proud of? Because because the world is this a history, human history is a, is a history of people just behaving badly, of being sinners and war and there's no culture out there that you gotta be real careful about when you say I'm, I'm proud to be Italian or I'm proud to be German or English because you can find so many problems with that. So, you know what I'm saying? So just what we need to be glorying in is that we are in Christ. And of course, we don't glory in that as if we've done anything, but that's our new identity. In heaven, there's not going to be an Italian, there's not going to be a German, an English person. Uh, there's just going to be people in Jesus Christ. See, that's what we need. And, and you see, if you begin to start thinking these things through and seeing how the Bible deals with our identity, it's the answer to all the identity problems we've got today. And, and, and the BLM and, and all this glorying and things that really at the end of the day don't matter. Because it's all, are you in Christ 
If you're in Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister. We're going to be in heaven together for eternity. If you aren't in Christ, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you came from. Uh, I, you're, you're going to hell. You're, you're going to suffer the wrath of God someday, right? And so if we just thought biblically <laughs> that the problems that we have with all the divisions out there would, would disappear. But, of course, that, that's the problem because the remaining sin makes it very difficult for us to, to do that. But uh, that, that's the truth of the matter. One more passage here. Uh, and I, I didn't think we were going to get too far today. But over in Hebrews chapter 9, let's just see how the writer of Hebrews brings this out. Beginning in verse 22. We're kind of just looking at how the church fulfills the typology of the temple uh, in Christ and so forth. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So right there you see that the law was given. And and, and in that, the, the Levitical priesthood and the temple, it was given to make the point, to drive the point home, uh, if, if there's not a bloody atonement made, at some point, your, your sins can't be forgiven. And, and so they were looking for that final atonement that was going to be in Jesus Christ. And so he's the fulfillment of all these types and shadows. And that's what he's saying there. Under the law, everything purif- the blood's what purified things as a rule, right? And, and so that's the point being driven home. Thus, it was necessary, verse 23, for the copies of the heavenly things, as that's what we've been saying, the types. These are all types of spiritual realities. That's what matters. The copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves were with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into the holy places made with hands, not, excuse me, into the holy places made with hands. So you see how he's showing the, how the typology, showing the type and the anti-type, or, or that which uh, fulfills the type. Christ, just as the priest went into the temple with the blood and made atonement for sin, so Christ has entered into the heavenlies, the, the heavenly temple as it were, because remember the tabernacle and the temple were the place where God dwells, in that most holy place, the holiness of God that is that man cannot approach into, one person could, the the high priest, right? So Christ has done this in, in the final form, and when He died, He He, he became the sacrifice, the, the blood, uh, His death became the uh, sacrifice for us to, to do away with our sins, and so. Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. And, and you kind of just think about that in the Mass, but we won't go into all that right now. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so, again, the end of the ages. I won't go into that right now either, but this is it. This age is it. This is what it was all been headed for. Christ came at the end of the ages 
Everything that was leading up to that, he's come, he's done his work, and he's gathering the church by his blood. And so you, you see how all these things are coming together and have come together, we might say, in Jesus Christ. Um, so, it, you know, we know that it took, uh, and I'll just finish up, finish up here with a few things. We're going through First Kings, uh, we're in chapter 7 right now. Um, I mentioned this last week that it says that it took him seven years to build the temple and then in the next verse I think it's at the end of a goes to the end of chapter 6 right yeah it was seven years building that then in chapter 7 verse 1 it took him almost twice as long 13 years to build his house and most, and I think properly so, see this as an indication that there's a problem with Solomon that, that, that was going to show up. But at the same time, I don't want to make too much of that because we're, to some degree we're speculating, but the Bible isn't haphazard. And when you have a verse, two verses together there, forget about the chapter division, it, there's a contrast there that you have to think God is telling us something that and we've seen this already, two or three hints already with Solomon that there's problems coming on the horizon. <laughs> they're, they're, they're coming. And again, not that that's haphazard. We're being reminded here every so often, Solomon's not Christ. He's depicting Christ. And he's a, he's the glor- most glorious king of Israel. But as, and I'll get to this in, in, uh, when we get to the Queen of, Bash- uh, the, the Queen of Sheba, when she comes to uh, visit Solomon, Jesus is going to pick up on that and say that there's one greater than Solomon here, talking about himself, and we'll, we'll get to all that. So Solomon was the most glorious king Israel could come up with, but he's no Christ. And, and we're keep, we keep getting these little indications every so often, right? Now, to be fair, I, I read one commentator who says, well, it's, it's not, doesn't mean anything because David already had a lot of materials already together. The temple was a smaller building than his palace. So it just makes more, it just makes sense that it didn't take him as long to build the temple. And you know, that might, that might be the case. Uh, but I, I kind of doubt. I, I, I think that there's a reason why this is, uh, related to us. But you know, I'll let you guys, uh, differ on that. And, uh, I don't, I don't consider that to be a real big thing, but, uh, in verses 15 to, in, back again, we're in chapter 7, you, you have him building the, uh, his palace to begin with, and then, uh, we see the latter, starting in verse 13, we have, um, a, uh, he, the temple furnishings, he's kind of making all the temple furnishings, uh, and, and the, and the temple and so forth. And uh, we're told here in chapter 7, in verse, uh, again, we're only going to cover a few things, but starting in verse 15, as he's building the uh, temple, it says that he cast two pillars of bronze, 18 cubits high, and I won't read all these things. There, there's two big pillars that stood outside the door of the actual temple. And, uh, that, again, the temple is it would often be considered to be the, the courtyard and then uh you know as well as the building. So when we say temple, the Jew generally would think of the wall around the courtyard, the whole temple complex. And, and that's fine. And then of course that was 
uh, divided into Jew or uh, men and women. You know, women could only go so far, and then later under Herod's temple, uh, the Gentiles could only go so far. So you had all these divisions. That it was all the temple. But when I say when these two columns stood outside the door of the temple, I'm talking about the temple, the most holy place, and the the the, the holy place and the most holy place. You know that part of it. So you understand here, they were outside that door, and uh, they were they were given a name. I think they were over a little over forty feet with the these big elaborate tops that he built on top of them, and one was called Jachin, which means Yahweh will establish. And the other was called Boaz. Of course, we, we are familiar with the term Boaz, the name Boaz, in, which means Yahweh is my strength. And let's just finish on that because that's just a great thing to think about here. You, you know, again, all these things point to Christ in some way and to the Lord. So you had these two temple, uh, two huge columns that people would see as they entered in. And the last thing that the priests would see before they went into the uh, building and they had names, and again, names were significant. And when you think about it, what could be more significant than the names here of these two things? Because remember, this is as you're going into, as the priest was going in to do his work of mediation. You've got two things that he's thinking about. Yahweh will establish, and Yahweh is strength. In a sense, Yahweh has established what's going to happen, and Yahweh is the strength that's going to get that done. Yahweh is the one who has determined how we are saved, and who's going to be saved, and Yahweh's the one who's going to get that done. He is elect, he's elected to save, and he is going to make sure they get saved. He has said salvation is in the Lord alone, salvation is in the blood of Christ alone, and that he is going to make sure that uh, that comes about. And so it's just a great um, thing to think about, the establishment uh, of the Lord. The, the verb establish is used three times, speaking about when God made his covenant with David. He said, I will establish your throne. I, I'm the one, I am the one who is doing this. And I have decreed these things to come to pass. Ultimately, it looks forward to salvation that God was going to send through Christ. So all that's going on in the temple revolves around the forgiveness of sins and making peace with God. And uh, this is what God has established. There's no other name under heaven whereby a man can be saved, right? God has said it. That's the end of it. He's, he's decreed all things. <clears throat> but he's also going to establish what he has decreed. And that's what Boaz speaks of. He both ordains and carries out his will. In salvation, it is most important to see that Christ had to come and do what we could not. See, the, some teach that the, God has established the means of salvation, and now the rest is up to us. Won't you accept his glorious, his wonderful offer? Well, no sinner is going to accept God's offer because sinners hate God. We all hate God. But God brings about the change. He, he regenerates us, right? He established, but he also carries it out. And so the first points to what God has said or promised, and the second reminds us of what he's going to do. And you think about what we, we talked about um, <clears throat> Abraham. In, of course, Romans 4, 
Remember, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Salvation comes not just in believing that God uh, can do, but that God will do what he has promised. And Abraham believed that. Now, we don't have two pillars outside this building. But I, we have a word that I think teaches that loud and clear to help the people when they know us and we talk to them that they understand we believe that God has established and God will carry out. God is a He has the strength to do what He has promised. Uh, the, the, my church before I came here was called Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, and, and there's a lot of uh, uh, I know a lot of independent Baptist churches that call themselves that Calvinistic and. And, and I love that name because, in a sense, it's, it's, it's saying the same thing. You know, sovereign grace. God sovereignly has uh, established salvation, but he is sovereign. He is gracious to, because salvation is by grace alone, through, through faith alone, right? But he's the one who has the, he's sovereign. He's the one who brings it all about. And so I hope one, one, uh, Commentator said it's good to remember when we walk into church these two things, and which is true, but I would say it might be better that we remember it when we walk out of this church. God is has established and God has the strength to carry out what he has established, because that's what faith is all about. Not only believing that God is, but that God will do what he says he will do. And that's what we need to 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 withstand this, the temptations of this world and the sin within is to believe that God will do what he has promised to do in Jesus Christ. And I hope that we all believe that. Well, I'm going to stop there. Any questions or comments, though, before we close for prayer? Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love to us this day, and we pray, Lord, that you would just uh, help us to be able to stand upon the truths of God's word. Lord, these things are not written for uh, our amusement. For information, they are written to build our faith up, to to teach us about who God is, <clears throat> teach us who we are, how much we need grace, and so we pray that we might be strong in the faith and, and love you more and more as we study your word. Bless those who are not here, Lord. <clears throat> those who are sick, that not doing too well, that you would uh, heal them and they would be back with us soon. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.